Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. Good morning. If there are some people standing in the back, I'm just going to assume that it's because we're really full, not because you're trying to stay awake. Okay. <laughs> Even though there's many seats here, I'm just going to tell myself that. Uh, well, I am excited for this morning because I think that sometimes we end up separating our theology from our life. Okay, so there's like theological truths that we say that we believe, but then when it comes to the way that we think and, and feel in our lives, that we actually just kind of throw the theology out the window. Uh, and we never actually applied those theological truths to our lives. So I'm, I'm excited because I think today we can help to bring some of those things a little bit closer together particularly around this little phrase, Jesus died for our sins. All right, that's, we, we know, we've heard that phrase plenty of times. It's very cliche around church circles. Uh, but I think as we unpack that a little bit today, from, particularly from the book of Isaiah, then I think it will help us better understand how we should think and feel about our relationship with God. So that's where we're going to end up. But to start with that, we need to go back and understand a little bit of the context. Okay, so that's where we're going. All right, so in the Old Testament, God made a covenant or a binding agreement with the nation of Israel. Okay, so uh, that's where we're starting, kind of like a, a treaty between two nations. All right, and so God gave them his law, which is based on God's own character and his goodness and his righteousness. And as long as Israel was obedient to that law, then God would bless them. But if they broke their side of the covenant, then there would be covenant curses. Or we can maybe you can think of that as like sanctions uh, on the country who's not fulfilling their side of the treaty. Okay, uh, you can read all about those covenant curses back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. We're just going to highlight a few. If Israel broke their side of the covenant, then they would experience drought, famine, disease, uh, their enemies would defeat them and destroy their cities, and then ultimately the people would be taken out of the promised land and sent into exile. So those were the covenant curses if Israel disobeys their side of the covenant. Now, I want to clarify here that this is not just God throwing some kind of a temper tantrum, okay? As if uh, it's like, oh, oh, you didn't do what I said, so now I'm not going to be your friend anymore, right? <laughs> like when we're little kids. No, uh, this, as we said, that God's law is based on his character. It's based on his goodness and his righteousness, right? And so uh, acting against God's law is actually acting in opposition to God and to who God is and acting in opposition to righteousness and goodness. And so God's anger or his wrath against sin, it's not like our anger, when you just get upset and you get mad at somebody, you kind of fly off the handle because they've upset you. God's anger, is, his wrath is not superficial. It's not arbitrary. No, God's wrath is the necessary response of a holy and just God against sin and evil. Just like in court, right? You don't pass out a punishment just because the judge is personally upset at somebody. No, it's because justice demands it. Right, so God's wrath against sin is perfectly just. So it's important to remember that as we're trying to think about how, how should we think and feel about God. Okay, now fast forward to the time of Isaiah. 
Or if you say Isaiah, whatever, it's just a pronunciation thing, don't be distracted because I say Isaiah. What we hear from Deuteronomy is actually what's happening, is exactly what's happening in Isaiah's time. Israel had turned away from God, they're doing all kinds of wickedness, broke their side of the covenant, and so the sanctions or the covenant curses are coming upon uh, the nation. But God is graciously sending prophets like Isaiah to warn the people of this coming disaster, to encourage them to repent and turn back to God. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 1, we'll get it here for you in a second. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why would you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing... And obedient, then you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, then you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah is basically preaching the message of Deuteronomy. He's saying if they would only repent and turn away from their sins, turn back to God, then God is gracious and merciful and he would forgive their sins and wash them away. If only. But they didn't listen to the prophets, they continued in their sin, and so they received the just punishment for their sins. God raised up the nation of Assyria, uh, the Assyrian Empire, to come and destroy the northern part of Israel and take all those people away into exile. And when we think about this, take the way into exile, we just say that very uh, quickly, but don't think of this as like some little PG-rated battle here. Uh, okay, the Assyrians were well known for their violent and brutal torture techniques. They would beat and rape and kill. They would skin their victims alive. They would impale them. That is, that they would stick a long spear up through their bodies and, and set them out, hang them out in front of the city as kind of a warning to those other nations. Uh, this is actually thought to be the origin of Roman crucifixion, like brutal violent stuff we're talking about here. And then about 120 years later, the Babylonian Empire would come down and destroy the southern part of Israel, uh, including Jerusalem and, and the temple. Okay, this was God's, the place where God met and dwelt together with his people. And so then whoever was left after the battle was taken off into exile. They were cast out of their homeland. Just like Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, they were cast out and sent into exile. The exile of Israel is a physical picture or an illustration of a spiritual reality. The wages of sin is death. Sin and disobedience are rebellion against God and require punishment. So as we said, justice demands it, right? So the exile of Israel in the Old Testament is a vivid picture, it's the illustration for us of the penalty of sin. Okay, so in Isaiah's ministry, 
is happening right in the middle of all of this stuff that's happening. So the northern kingdom is being destroyed, sent off into exile, and then he is preaching to the southern kingdom saying, look, the same thing is going to happen to you. So he's warning them uh, against this coming disaster uh, and calling them to repent. So those are some major themes throughout the book of Isaiah. But amidst those themes of judgment and repentance, there are also uh, themes of hope and restoration. So sprinkled throughout, uh, there is promises that yes, judgment is going to come for your sin, you're going to be sent into exile, but on the other side of that judgment, a remnant will return to the land. There's going to be restoration. Like in Isaiah 51 verse 11, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, that is to Jerusalem, with singing Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So these passages are meant to be a source of hope and comfort, reminding them that no, the exile is not the end. Judgment doesn't have the final word, but there will be restoration on the other side of judgment. And it is in this context, amidst these promises of restoration and salvation, that we're going to get to our text for today. That is Isaiah uh, chapter 52 and 53. Okay, we still together? All right, that's a lot of background. I understand that's what you get when you have the Old Testament lecturer as your preacher for the morning. Okay. But I think it's really going to help us understand what's going on here. So, uh, starting in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. In this passage, we meet a character called the servant of the Lord. So God speaking, behold my servant, right? That's where we get the title from. My servant shall prosper. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. So the restoration that we just mentioned. But we're going to come back to that. Uh, Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, Israel, right? I don't think that Isaiah is changing the reference to the pronouns here. So you refers to Israel and he refers to the servant. So as many as were astonished at you, Israel, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for for that which has not been told to them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what we've heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So we see here that God's servant is going to experience some serious suffering. He's going to be beaten beyond the point of recognition. He's not even going to look human anymore. Even to the point where other kings, the kings of other nations, they have no words. They are shocked and appalled. Just as many Uh, were astonished at you, so too he shall startle many nations. So what's happening is this is likening Israel's exile to the servant's suffering. Just as many were astonished at you, Israel, when you went into exile, your destruction in exile, so too many will be astonished at his suffering. Would anyone even believe what God, that God would do this to his own servant? This is unbelievable. 53 verse 2. For he grew up before God like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. Had no form or majesty that we should look at him. 
Well, sorry, and he, had, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This servant had very humble beginnings. He wasn't raised in a palace or a mansion. He was more like, you know, little twig sprouting up, like a root in dry ground. It doesn't have a lot of hope. It's just going to get dried up, right? There wasn't anything in his looks that attracted people to him. He wasn't like King Saul, who was this tall and strapping guy. He wasn't like King David, who had beautiful eyes and was handsome. In fact, people would actually reject him and despise him. They wouldn't honor him. In this life, he would experience sorrows and griefs. This is not a glorious picture for God's servant. This guy's going to have a rough life. Verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered it? He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So he would be oppressed and unjustly accused. You know, if you were, and I were accused of something that we didn't do, we would be the first to speak up about it, right? Hey, I didn't do this. I don't deserve this. But no, he didn't open his mouth. He wouldn't protest. He wouldn't object. And nobody else speaks up about it either. Nobody else takes any note of it or puts a stop to it. And so ultimately, his suffering leads to his death. That's what it means to be cut off out of the land of the living. He died. And even though he was innocent, he was buried among the wicked. Right? What a tragedy. Why would God let this happen to his, his own servant? Let's go back and read verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we regarded him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted, but he was punished for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and through or with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the servant was innocent. He hadn't done anything to deserve judgment, right? No wickedness, no violence, or no deceit was in his mouth. But his suffering and his death was not the punishment for his own sin. No, they were the punishment for our sins. Okay, now remember here, the hour in Isaiah's context is Isaiah speaking to Israel, but then by extension, right, it will also apply to us as well. We are the ones who are like sheep that are wandering astray. Right? We're the ones not following after God, our shepherd, but going off our own way. But our sin was placed on the servant, and he was pierced and crushed and afflicted because of our sin. So in context then, 
let's look at what's happening here. Israel had turned away from God. They had broken their side of the covenant, and so the covenant curses were coming upon them. Their sin rightfully deserved the shame and, and punishment and, and exile and death. And so the Assyrians and the Babylonians came and destroyed them, uh, destroyed their cities, beat and tortured and killed their people, and then uh, hung their bodies on poles out in front of the city. And then everybody who was left was cut off from the land and marched across the desert, sent into exile. And then all the other nations around were just shocked and horrified and appalled. They had no words for how brutal that this punishment was. But now Isaiah is saying that that exile is a physical picture or an illustration of what sin deserves. You, Israel, you experienced physically, tangibly, the punishment for your sin. But, and this is the point here, what you really need is someone to deal with the spiritual judgment for your sin. So here is someone, the servant of the Lord, who's going to take all of your sin and all of your iniquity and all of your law-breaking onto himself, and he's going to take the real punishment for your sin. He's going to be brutally beaten on your behalf. He's going to be hanged on a pole outside of the city. He is going to experience exile on your behalf. He is going to be cast out of God's presence on your behalf. He is going to experience death on your behalf. Remember what we read in verse 14. As many were astonished at you, and we said that was likening Israel's exile and punishment to the servant's suffering. So the servant himself is experiencing all the punishment and the sin that Israel deserved. What Israel experienced tangibly or physically receiving the covenant curses that they deserved for their sin, the servant was going to experience in the spiritual reality on their behalf. What their punishment deserved, or their punishment was only a picture or an illustration of his suffering would be in reality. All right, do you see that? But remember, we said that this passage fits into one of these restoration and salvation kind of sections. So all this talk about suffering and punishment doesn't sound very hopeful and comforting. But remember, God's promise for restoration happens on the other side of judgment. After the exile, the Israelites would return and live in the land. The reason that that is possible is because the exile was the punishment for their sin. So once the punishment had been paid, then God's wrath is subsided, and it has been fully poured out, so now they can have peace with God and be restored, returned to the land. Let me show you a couple of fascinating verses here on this point. Still staying in Isaiah, uh, chapter 27, verses 8 and 9. By warfare and exile, you, that is God, contend with her, that is Israel. With his fierce blast, he drives her out, that is, into exile, as on the day that the east wind blows. By this, then, will Israel's guilt be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. In other words, their destruction and exile is the fulfillment of their punishment, and so now their sins can be forgiven. Or look in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 42. Speaking of bringing that punishment on Israel for their sin. So, 
Or in this way will I satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry. Once that punishment is paid, then God's wrath has been satisfied. So now there can be peace with God and restoration in relationship. Okay? So once again, Israel's return to the land after the exile is also a picture of what the servant will accomplish in reality. Back in chapter 53, verse 5, the punishment that he took for us brought us peace with God. So you see, when the servant takes our sin upon himself, then the entirety of God's wrath against sin is poured out on him. He experiences it on our behalf. So now that the punishment has been paid, then there's no more wrath left to be poured out. So the sinner then can be forgiven, have a restored relationship with God. His suffering is the means by which we are forgiven. So this is the hope and comfort of this passage, that the servant has taken the punishment on himself so that now we can be forgiven and have a restored relationship with God. But that is not the end for the servant. He's not left there in the grave. If we keep reading verses 10 through 12, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes uh, an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring. God shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And then remember where we started in 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So why all the suffering? Why does God let this happen? Well, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God is the one who puts him to grief. So this was God's plan. That the servant would be crushed and killed because his death was like the guilt offering for us. That by taking the punishment on himself, now many will be counted righteous before God. That was God's goal through all this. The suffering of the servant is the means by which we can be counted righteous and have peace with God. And so the servant is vindicated. His offering is accepted by God and ultimately uh, he will be exalted in the end. So that phrase, high and lifted up, when you hear that, you should think Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. That's the same phrase. Right? So the servant's exaltation is comparable to, to God sitting on his heavenly throne. So Isaiah wants Israel to know, look, you are going to experience punishment and ju physical judgment for your sin in the exile, but... God will provide someone to be the real fulfillment of what you could not ever do. He will take the real spiritual consequences of your sin, and provide real spiritual restoration to God. So that's Isaiah's message to Israel here. From our perspective, looking back through the lens of the New Testament, we can see that the servant who God provided 
to take the punishment for our sins was Jesus. When Jesus showed up on earth, he was not anything noteworthy. He was born into a carpenter's family. No one even made any space for them in the hotel. He was born into a livestock stable and was, his crib was a little feeding trough, right? Not very impressive beginnings. He grew up in a small town called Nazareth. Oh, can anything good come from Nazareth? By appearances, he was just a normal guy, didn't attract a crowd. As he started his ministry, the religious leaders then were the first to reject him. They came up with all these different plots to try and discredit him, uh, to try and have him killed. Then later, some of his own followers kind of struggled with some of his teachings. And so they then turned away and rejected him. And then when he was finally arrested, even his 12 closest friends ran away. Speaking of his arrest, it was all a scam. It was unjust corruption by jealous religious leaders. Even the witnesses who testified against him were just making up stories. This was oppression and injustice at its finest. But he never spoke out in his own defense. Like a lamb going to the slaughter, he remained silent. Although he was totally innocent, he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet he was convicted and was sentenced to death, was beaten beyond recognition, his back was shredded to a pulp with whips that had little glass pieces, lead balls in it. And then he carried a cross outside the city where he was hanged along with other criminals as a warning to others against breaking the law. And hanging on that cross, he experienced exile on our behalf, being forsaken by God. And after hours of struggling to breathe, he finally suffocated to death. And then just to make sure he was alive, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And then the Roman centurion in charge looked on in astonishment. Surely this man was the Son of God. And they took his body and buried him in a rich man's tomb in a cemetery along with a whole bunch of actual sinners. But all this punishment was not for his own sin, but for yours and for mine. God placed our sin on Jesus and emptied out the cup of his wrath upon him. He experienced the punishment that our sins deserved. We're the ones who broke God's law. We're the ones who, like sheep, have gone astray. But Jesus took the covenant curse upon himself. Look what Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. Is this not astonishing like don't take this for granted and, and feel comfortable with this just because that little phrase Jesus died for your sins has become so cliche and familiar to us remember what that means that should have been you experiencing all that torture and forsakenness and death just like we we just sang about but God doesn't want you to be cast out of his presence forever. God doesn't want to send you into exile. God wants a relationship with you. And so he sent his own son to take the wrath and the punishment in your place. And now that the punishment has been paid, his wrath has subsided and you can be 
forgiven. Have a restored relationship with God. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And through his wounds, our relationship with God is healed and restored. But Jesus' story doesn't end in the grave. He rose from the dead, proving that the penalty for sin had been accomplished and that sin and death are defeated. And so now he is seated at the right hand of God, high and lifted up. Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in, every, uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, but now we want to make sure that all of this doesn't just stay some kind of abstract theology. Uh, I want to point out a few implications to connect this back to how we think and feel about God and our relationship with him. Let me first speak to those who have not yet surrendered or turned their lives over to Jesus. If you are not a born-again follower of Jesus, then the implications of this message for you are that you should rightfully fear the coming judgment. Just like Isaiah was warning to Israel, judgment is coming God is holy and just, and he will and must punish your sin. That means eternal death, exile, cast out of the presence of God forever. That's the only way for his wrath to be satisfied. Justice demands it. That judgment is coming, so you should be afraid. But, you know what else you should see in this passage? Do you see how much God loves you? God wants a relationship with you so much that not even your sin could get in the way of that. But he can't just erase your sin and pretend that everything's okay. That would violate his justice. And so out of his free grace and love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a substitute to take your place, to take your sin onto himself so that he will experience on your behalf that death and exile that you deserve. And then, since your punishment has been paid, then your sins can be forgiven and you can have a restored relationship with God. The only way to receive this is by belonging to Jesus. It's a, it's a transfer of allegiance, okay? So turning away from sin as your master and surrendering your life to Christ. That's what the word repentance means. It's, it's making a U-turn, turning away from your sin and turning towards Jesus. So you say, I want to belong to you, Jesus. I want to serve that king who would sacrifice himself for his people. I want to accept what Jesus has done as on my behalf. Okay, now you can have that conversation with God in your seat right now, or you are welcome to come and and see somebody, talk to somebody, chat with me, chat with Brian, Dana, anybody that you've seen up here, the person that you came to church with today. We would love to help you find a restored relationship with God. But now for the Christian, for those who have surrendered their lives to Christ and follow him, well, what does this mean for us? Number one, it means that you have no need to fear that coming judgment 
and the wrath of God. The cup of God's wrath against your sin has been fully poured out, emptied entirely onto Christ. So now there is no more wrath left for you. Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none left. That cup is empty. Right? His wrath has been satisfied. So now, whenever you do sin, because Christians, we do sin, right? We know we still live in these fleshly human bodies and that are affected by temptation. But you don't have to be fearful as if, oh no, now God's going to come and get me. <laughs> right? Jesus died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. I mean, think about this, right? When Jesus died for your sins, all of your sins were still future, right? So all of them have been paid for. There's no more wrath or condemnation left for those sins because it's already been poured out on Christ. So does this mean then, well, great, I'm off the hook so I can sin as much as I want. (laughs) No. Paul dealt with this in Romans chapter 6. He says, by no means. But That is such a foolish way to look at life. When you surrendered your life to Christ, you were transferred from a a living death of sin into real life. So if in Christ you are really alive, then why would you ever want to go back to living death? That is absurd. The trouble is that you think that that life of sin is actually more satisfying than living God's way. But don't you think that if God is the one who created us and created this life, then he is the one who would know how to best enjoy it? Or maybe what you think I'm saying is that now there are no consequences for sin. But we know that that is absolutely not true. We know that our sin can lead to some pretty disastrous consequences. The drunk driver who causes a fatal accident, right? You don't get to take that back. There's an obvious reason why God wants us to live in his way, because he's trying to protect us and to help us avoid some of those painful consequences. But those things are not God's punishment or judgment on you for your sin. Maybe warnings to get you to repent. But there's another consequence of your sin, and that can be a growing distance in your relationship with God. When your child disobeys you, they don't stop becoming your child. You don't forsake them forever, send them out of the family. But there is some distance in that relationship until you're reconciled together again. And so remember, your sin is in opposition to God, opposition to God's character. So as you sin, you are stepping away from God. You think that that thing is actually satisfying, but what you're doing is you're moving away from the only relationship that is truly satisfying. So if you really love God, then that distance in relationship, it's going to grieve your heart. So resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. James chapter 4. I'm emphasizing this point so strongly because I think that there are people out there who actually think, no, we have to keep people afraid of God's judgment because the threat of punishment is the only way that we're going to get them to live a godly life. 
But no, a positive motivation will always be stronger than a negative motivation. Right? So we don't live godly lives because we're afraid of getting punished. We live godly lives because of our relationship with the Father. So how then should the Christian feel when they sin? Well, sorrowful, remorseful that I have chosen to live in opposition to God. And also sorrow over that distance that I'm creating in my relationship with God by moving in the other direction from him. I should also feel repentant, right? Because I'm learning to hate sin and to love godliness. And so I should turn away from my sin and towards, turn back towards following Jesus, towards following God's way. But also I can feel incredible gratitude that Christ has already taken the punishment for that sin. And, and even more so when I think about the picture, the kind of suffering that he went through for that sin. And then I can feel incredible comfort because there is no more wrath left for me. So number one, you have no need to fear God's judgment because, of his, because his wrath has been satisfied and there's none left for you. And then number two, implication, you can have 100% full assurance that you are saved. You don't have to wonder, oh, how does God feel about me now? You know, have I done enough good works? Because your relationship with God is not based on what you do, but on what Christ has already done. So if I'm ever doubting whether or not I'm really saved, I need only to look to Christ on the cross and hear him say, it is finished. Remember what we read in, back in verse 11, he will make many to be accounted righteous because he shall bear their iniquities. Because your punishment has been fully paid for, now God can extend forgiveness. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or as we read back in Isaiah chapter 1, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So you don't have to wonder am i being good enough for god to like me you know have i done enough good things to outweigh the bad things you never will on your own but that's the good news of the gospel that jesus has already done it on your behalf second corinthians 5 21 paul says god made him who knew no sin that is jesus to be sin for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see you in your sin. That's been forgiven. Now you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So you can have full assurance that you are right with God because you're not depending on something that you yourself do or your own works, but you're depending on Christ who has fully accomplished it for you on the cross. The punishment that was upon him brought us peace. All right. I think the best way for us to close off here is to remember and to reflect and to rejoice in what Jesus has done on our behalf. I was thinking as I was driving over here that, you know, maybe this message we feel like, oh, I've heard the gospel before. I know Jesus died for my sins. 
But if that's how you feel, that this is just something you've heard before, then just be patient, because the longer that you're a Christian, this message of the gospel doesn't get more and more boring, actually gets more and more exciting, because you realize how much it applies to you. So in the words of the Apostle Peter, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Amen. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you and we rejoice. We rejoice in your great love for us. We rejoice that sin was not a greater obstacle than your love. That sending you sent your son to take our, your wrath against sin in our place. The punishment that we deserved. Thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for what he has done. Thank you that we can look to him and have full assurance of our relationship with you. So may we rejoice in that. May those who do not know that relationship find that relationship today, we pray. Thank you in your name. This is Rico Veca, and I am also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today, and it is my hope that you will join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast.